You are listening to the Reality Church Ventura podcast, a collection of sermons from our weekly Sunday gatherings. To learn more about reality, visit us online at realityventura.com. Such a joy and privilege to be with you here. This, uh, this church family means so much to me personally, our family, and also Reality Church in Stockton in a lot of ways. Uh, this community is like a older sibling to us, uh, has modeled faithfulness, but really two areas that have inspired us as a church, and it's your heart of worship as a church, and also your passion for the gospel in the nations. Um, you may actually take for granted the unique gift you have in this church, and that's what happens when you're familiar with something, but as an outside perspective, you have a real true gift to be a part of this community. So savor it, um, cherish it, and uh, I would encourage you to invite others to participate in what you have going on here. Amen? Uh, If you would, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. And if you are able, um, I'm gonna ask you to, to please stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Psalm 96, I'll read the whole psalm, starting in verse one. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad that the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. We uh, together declare, God, that you alone are worthy of our praise. That you alone are creator and our redeemer. And you have given us so many reasons to praise you. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that there are hindrances to our praise. Even at this moment, things dividing our hearts, thoughts pulling us away and distracting us right now. Even idols that we have bowed the knee to, that that we need to release and let go of and turn from and turn to you. We acknowledge, Lord, that We get blinded, we acknowledge that we get 
so off track, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in this very moment. We invite you to move in our hearts, to open up the eyes of our hearts so that we may see this vision of beauty and glory that the psalmist is describing. What they experienced, we want to experience. The joy that is absolutely explicit and clear in the psalm, would you fill us with that same joy? I want to pray for Reality Ventura, that you would strengthen them in their resolve to be a worshiping and a gospel-proclaiming church here and in the nations. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So when I was a, a boy, my grandfather would take my brother and me out to the Air Force base that he had been previously stationed at as a young man. And I'll never forget this one road that would dead end right into the end of the runway. And all that was between us and the action was this chain link fence. And the planes would come off that runway so close that we would cower. I mean, it, it was as if we could, if we reached up our hands, it would hit the bottom of the plane. It felt that close. And there were a lot of amazing jets and planes that flew out of there, but one that stands out in my memory is the B-52 bombers that they used to fly out of this base before it was decommissioned. And this amazing uh, innovation would, would come onto the run runway, get into position, and it would just start to billow all of this smoke out. I don't know if they still make these jets like this, but so much smoke. And it would be off in the distance, and then it would start coming toward us, and as it was moving toward us, we would, it would go from seeing it to hearing it. And then there was this moment where we went from hearing it to feeling it. And as that plane came right off the runway, you know, we're standing right there, standing under such power, it would just shake us to our core. And it's, it's very difficult to explain the sort of sense of thrill my brother and me felt in, in that moment as something so just wild drew near, standing under such power. And the effect was pretty interesting because, for one, it created this shared sense of connection. I don't know if you've ever gone through something amazing or something crazy with someone next to you that you can't help but turn to the person to be like, And also, what it did was it uh, stirred this impulse to go tell other people. I couldn't wait to tell my grandmother. I couldn't wait to tell my parents about what we'd experienced on the runway that day. And, and this is the, the visceral response that the psalmist is describing and inviting us into in Psalm 96. To, to not just see and hear in some sort of distant way, but to tremble and to rejoice in the presence. Psalm 96 is a call to all the nations to gather to the Lord God of Israel who is king of all the earth and to ascribe him glory and to offer him the devotion and the praise that he alone is worthy of. Now the history of this psalm is it actually roots back to a portion in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles chapter 16. This was a portion of a compilation of songs 
that were sung as the Ark of the Covenant was coming into Jerusalem during the days of King David's reign. If you know anything about the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, the Ark was a very important thing for Israel because it, it was the throne of God on earth. It's where God chose to dwell with man. In fact, there was a portion called the mercy seat. And so it's where God reigned with his people. In years prior, the ark had been captured by the Philistines and taken away from Israel. And this was a very tragic moment for the people of God. In fact, it describes in the Bible that when the ark went away, that, quote, the glory of God departed. Ichabod, the glory's gone. But here's the ark back and with God's people and coming to rest in Jerusalem. And all of God's people, all of Israel is gathered to celebrate the presence of God, the glory of God coming to dwell among his people. And the worshipers are gathered with their harps and their stringed instruments and their cymbals. The gatekeepers have their hands on the door ready to open up the gates to let the Lord in. The priests have the trumpet in hand, ready to blow their trumpets, trumpets as he comes. The Levites and King David are in priestly fine linens. They're rejoicing. They're even dancing. You remember this story when King David danced? Here comes the Lord in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in all of his strength, in all of his beauty. And as the presence drew near, the songs began to swell. And the people cried out, and they're joining with all of creation. And the seas are roaring, and the forests are resounding. And the people are lifting up a joyful shout to the Lord. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. but even right now illustrates that our experience does not always match the experience being described in Psalm 96 all that much, does it? In fact, I think for many of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves, we experience what Paul Tripp described as yawning in the face of glory. Yeah, you may subscribe to the things of God. Yeah, I believe in God, of course, I was raised in the church. Yeah, yeah, I, I come to church on Sundays. I'm raising my kids in the Lord. Yeah, 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 I, I, I believe in God. But in a lot of ways, we're just like, eh. Psalm 96 is for everyone. Please hear me, everyone. And that is explicit in the psalm. But I believe Psalm 96 is distinctly important for those of us today who find themselves tragically unimpressed by God. Tragically, just unfazed, unmoved. Maybe there was a period in your life where you felt the spirit of the Lord moving in your life and you're passionate for the name of the Lord and passionate to praise him and tell other people and yet life kicked your butt. And here you are just jaded. Or maybe you've never experienced it. You've always watched the person down the aisle. They seem to love the Lord. They seem to be passionate about God. Where's my experience like that? Wherever you find yourself today, I wanna pray and urge you that you would be open to the responses that this psalm is calling for. 
And notice the force that it is speaking with. Everything mentioned is not a suggestion. It is a call. And I believe it's a call to three distinct responses. Adoration, astonishment, and finally anticipation. So if you're taking notes, let's begin with the theme of adoration. This psalm is a call to worship. And a unique thing about Hebrew poetry is that sometimes it will say the same thing over and over and over again, but just with different words in order to emphasize the importance of something. And so it's re- Uh, continuing to say the same thing, but just in different words. Sing to the Lord, tell of his salvation, um, declare his glory, worship the Lord, rejoice all the earth, ascribe him glory. So this psalm is a call to worship. But unlike many of the other psalms in the Psalter, which are um, uh, normally addressed to Israel, worship the Lord, O Israel, this psalm, however, broadens the invitation to all the earth. Let all the nations come and worship the Lord. Look with me again in verses one through three. Sing to the Lord a new song. We'll come back to that. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. And I'm gonna need your help on this one. Declare his glory among what? The nations. His marvelous deeds among all peoples all people. Now the significance of this is probably going to be lost on us because here we are worshiping God far from Jerusalem. And maybe for all of us or most of us, we've always just worshiped God from across the globe. In a lot of ways, we are experiencing the fulfillment of what this psalm talks about. Here we are praising God from the nations. But this invitation is unique because It is an invitation to those who are not yet a part of the covenant family of God to come and call upon the covenant name of God, bless his holy name, to relate to God, to approach God intimately. And this would have been unthinkable. Let me illustrate this. There are only five people in the entire world that can appropriately call me dad. And there's only one person who can appropriately call me husband. And there was only one people group, one nation, one distinct group of people that could appropriately call God Yahweh. And yet all are being summoned. All are being called to come and worship the Lord. So clearly there's a prophetic tone here. And what I mean by prophetic tone is that it's looking forward to something that's not quite yet realized in the moment that this is being penned. Now, if you know the the story arc of scripture and where King David is, some of these descriptions in this psalm are kind of out of place. Let me repeat some of those things. The psalm is calling all the nations to gather around the throne in the sanctuary of God. If you know anything about Temple worship in the time of Israel. The nations did not belong in in the sanctuary of God. It was only a very unique group of people that belonged in a certain portion and only the high priest once a year that belonged in the Holy Holies. And yet all the nations are being called and they're being described as being clothed in the splendor of his holiness, which is another way of saying clothed in righteousness, robed in righteousness, 
And they're telling of his salvation and declaring his reign as king. So Psalm 96, to put it simply, is just a little ahead of its time. And what's being called for in Psalm 96 is actually envisioned again later in scripture in the book of Revelation, but with one key detail that makes all of this possible. Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 10 tell us this. After this, and this is the apostle John speaking, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every what? There it is tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes or in the splendor of his holiness. And they were holding palm branches in their hands. Remember that story? And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The lamb who makes all of this possible. So what David spoke of prophetically, the apostle John is experiencing. How? Because of the work of the lamb. There's a lot of um, ideas about what this new song, sing to the Lord a new song is. And devotionally it can be applied in many different ways. Well, it's a new day. And so we offer God a new song. Or his mercies are new every morning, so we offer him a new song. Or maybe God is doing something unique in your life. You're in a new season, and you offer him a new song. And these are all appropriate. But the Bible actually tells us what the new song. Revelation tells us that the new song is the song of heaven. The new song is the song that is sung by all of the nations in all of their languages, celebrating the salvation that God brings through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the lamb slain for the sins of the world, the savior who clothes his people in the splendor of his holiness. And it turns out this is the offering that allows for the nations to enter into his courts with praise. It all hinges on the lamb. Sing to the Lord all the earth. That was a pipe dream in David's days. Compelling picture nonetheless, but totally outside the realm of possibility while David was on the throne. But then the author of the first gospel, Matthew, does this crazy thing in that genealogy that you always pass over. <laughs> He makes this strange connection, Jesus Christ, son of David, the greater king. For us today, because of the work of Jesus, the crucified and now risen king, the one who brings hope to the nations, rescue and forgiveness, the one who makes outsiders insiders, the one that allows for us otherwise non-covenant people to call upon the covenant name of God because of this king. This is no longer a wish. This is no longer a dream. This is no longer some cheesy like, wouldn't that be nice? This is the very vision that drives the Christian church. This is why you have people right now in London 
praying and ministering in a city that is called the gateway to the nations. It's why you continue to send missionaries across the globe. It's why men, women, and children who are supported by this very congregation are speaking the gospel in many languages all across the globe. There's a modern call to worship that I love that really expresses this heart of welcome to all. And it goes like this. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel lost and worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who fall and desire victory. To all who sin and need a savior to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness and to whoever else will come. This church opens wide her doors in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and offers welcome in his name, the friend of sinners, the lover of his enemies, the defender of the weak and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. To all who would come, come and worship. Adoration is key here because it's only once we as God's people have our eyes lifted upon God in worship that we're then ready to look outward towards the world in mission. Through praise, a passion for evangelism. I love the way that C.S. Lewis put it in this Quote, and I'm, I'm just gonna be honest, this quote is a little bit dated and you'll see what I mean here in just a moment. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical parsonages. See what I said? Children, flowers, mountains, and on and on and on. And then he says this, just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it great? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God is doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. How many times have you been like, hey, I tried this new restaurant. You gotta try it. Or have you seen this new show? Or have you seen this? Or have you, there's just this impulse to invite other people into what we enjoy. So it turns out that a heart for worship and a passion for evangelism go hand in hand because we can't help but tell people about what we ourselves adore. And we praise what we value. And guess what? we invite other people to praise what we value as well. Now, the psalmist also provides us with the reason why God alone is worthy of our adoration and praise. Look with me again in verses four through six. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, or literally translated, worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Now, I am not proficient in the Hebrew language, but there is a wordplay that's happening in the original language that I wanna share with you. It didn't land so well with the first service. So let's see how it goes here. Um, the generic term for God or gods is Elohim. Maybe you've heard that term before. And then the term for idols or literally worthless idols is Elohim. So the psalmist is doing something I think maybe many of us would be unwilling to do. And as I think about this, this is probably like one of the sickest Hebrew insults ever. What he essentially is saying this, your Elohim is Elohim. Now, I grew up in Northern California where, forgive me, children, everything was hella this and hella that and hella this. So listen for it. You ready? Bro, your Elohim is Elohim. You hear it? <laughs> now you know the Bible. <laughs> Compared to the, it didn't land here also, if, it's, if, if, if that's what you were wondering. Everyone in Stockton would be like, yeah, I get it, I get it. Compared to your God, nothing. Compared to the Lord who brings salvation to the nations, who created the heavens and the earth, who is the rightful king of all the earth and who judges with equity and righteousness and faithfulness, compared to the one true living God, your idol is nothing. There's a scene in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the great showdown of the gods. And it describes at one portion, there's this altar to the god Baal. And all the priests are there. And then there's the, the altar where the lowly prophet Elijah is. And the terms of the showdown are quite simple. The God who sends fire from heaven is legit. And the priests of Baal are, Baal are trying everything, calling upon their God, send fire, send fire, send fire, send fire, and nothing. And they get so desperate that they begin to mutilate their flesh cutting themselves and pouring out drink offerings, sacrificing life and limb for their God and getting nothing. There's an illustration there for you. And Elijah, and I don't suggest this at all, by the way, but Elijah begins to stir the pot. He's like, hey, maybe you need to pray a little bit louder. Maybe your God, I don't know, he went on a trip. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping and you need to wake him up. And then, God, and then Elijah goes back and he prays to the Lord, let this people know that you alone are God. And we're told in 1 Kings chapter 18 that the one true living God sent fire from heaven, consumed the altar and the sacrifice on the altar. And it says that all the people, when they saw, they bowed before the Lord and they worshiped. Everybody worshiped. Here's the assumption that the Bible has. And I know that no one likes to be told about themselves through someone else. Like, let me tell you about you. Yeah, everyone's like, yeah, do go ahead. 
But let me tell you something about you. Everybody worships. Doesn't matter your background, your age, your gender, your religious you know, affiliation. Everybody worships. That's the assumption of the Bible. And the assumption of the psalm, as it's addressed to all the nations, is that all the nations have their idols. No, no nation is immune from this. We all are worshiping something. We're all looking to something or someone to make our lives meaningful, to offer us the security and the identity that our hearts long for most. And anything that is not God, the Bible describes as an idol. Which means to exchange the glory of the creator God for the image of a created thing. And fill in the blank. Some people worship money. Some people worship sex. Some people worship power. Some people worship success. Some people worship people. Some people worship their own children. An idol could be a good thing that is sort of slowly and subtly deified. Some people worship explicitly other gods and other religions. Some people even try to make themselves God. But here's the deal. Everybody worships. And Psalm 96 is challenging everybody to compare their idols with the God of the Bible. What the psalmist is essentially saying is consider the splendor and the majesty and the strength and the beauty of that which you worship. What has your God done for you? What has your idol done in your life? Did your God form the entire universe? Did your God speak all of the galaxies into motion? Did your God form the depths of the sea? Did your God tell the ocean its limits? Did your God plant the forest? Did your God raise the mountains? No, the Lord formed the heavens. The Lord established the earth. And it's the Lord who brings justice and righteousness and faithfulness because he is creator and he is savior and he is king and he is judge. And because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we have even more to consider. Did your God send his only son to live the life that you must in your place? Did your God send his only son to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute in your place? Did your God rise on the third day? Is your God capable of rescuing you from that path of self-destruction? Is your God capable of breathing resurrection life into you? Has your God promised to be with you always and to offer you his presence always? Is your God making all things new? What we see here in this psalm is really twofold. It packs a punch. And the twofold command really is this. Give God the glory and turn from your worthless idols. And the truth is this, that we're gonna struggle to see God as great so long as we're unwilling to see our idols as worthless. And we will continue and continue and continue to yawn in the face of glory so long as we're being enamored by the counterfeits. This morning earlier, as a group of us were praying for this morning, 
I felt like the Lord impressed something on my heart. I, I was reminded of when I was raising small children, whenever my kids would get their hands on something that they shouldn't, something that it was fragile or something that would hurt them. You know, parents learn pretty quickly. It's no use just telling your kid like, hey, drop that, let that go. Your kid's gonna be like, no. And they're gonna like white knuckle that thing, right? What's the best way to get a child to let go of something that they shouldn't be holding on to? You offer them something better. It's what theologians of old called the expulsive power of a new affection. And this is what the psalmist is presenting. Let go of your idols and cling to him who is better. Adoration. Secondly, this psalm is intended to evoke astonishment. You remember the classic Pixar film, The Incredibles? Mr. Incredibles had a really hard day at the office. He's a big dude. He's in that little tiny car and it's breaking down, it's puttering and it gets into the driveway and he slams the door and he turns to see this little neighbor boy on a three-wheeler and he snaps at that boy. What are you waiting for? Remember the boy's answer? I don't know, something amazing, I guess. <laughs> that is probably the truest answer to what we're all looking for as well. It's why we do so many of the things we do. It's why we seek so many of the things that we seek. It may even be why you are here right now. We are just desperate to be impressed. And whether we recognize it or not, that desire to be amazed, that desire to be astonished is really just a deep down craving to see God, to be moved and captivated by his glory. And we as humans, again, I'm speaking for all people here, we are hardwired for awe. It's why we search for joy. It's why we search for pleasure. It's why we search for beauty. It's why we travel for adventure. It's why we spend money to experience a sense of thrill. It's why we are drawn towards things that move us. It's why we are drawn towards things that give us the chills and the goosebumps. It's even why we are drawn towards things that cause our bodies to tremble. It's been said before that even the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is really just unconsciously looking for God. And at the end of the day, we are going to look one of two places to experience that astonishment. We will either look to created things or we will look to the creator himself. We will look to things that will fade and perish and in the long run, let us down and leave us empty or we will look to him who is eternal, who alone can satisfy. Verses seven through nine. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, and I need your help here, tremble before him all the earth. Tremble. Now when the Bible instructs believers to fear God, it does not mean be terrified of him. Terror of God sees God as a threat. It's what drove Adam and Eve to run from God and to hide from God and to cover themselves from God. That is, that is faithless fear and 
the New Testament would tell us that the perfect love of God casts out that kind of fear that sees God as a threat. Now, the kind of fear that is being commended here and the kind of fear that is commended in a lot of different places in the scriptures is the kind of fear that has to do with experiencing a life-gripping awe. It means to be overwhelmed and consumed. And this is not just warm, sentimental feelings about God. This is describing a visceral reaction to him. In fact, it's interesting, in the Bible, often fear and trembling go hand in hand. A theologian from the past once said that the uniform report of sacred scripture is that every human being who ever is exposed to the holiness of God trembles in his presence. John Stott once said, no one ever had a moderate reaction to an encounter with Jesus Christ. There's a story I'm reminded of from my childhood. The story was the wind in the willows. And it's about a rat and a mole that go in search for the otter's missing son. And their journey takes them to this mysterious island where they are offered this this vision of this amazing divine being that they were not planning on encountering. And even from the moment that they show up at this island, they, they sense that there's something different about this place. In fact, the, the, the rat calls it a holy place. And this is what it says. Then suddenly the mole felt a great awe fall upon him, an awe that turned his muscles to water, bowed his head and rooted his feet to the ground. It was no panic terror. Indeed, he felt wonderfully at peace and happy. But it was an awe that stuck and held him. And without seeing, he knew it could only mean that some distinguished presence was very, very near. With difficulty, he turned to look for his friend and saw him at his side. And he too was stricken and trembling violently. The mole raised his hat, his head, and noticed that all of nature, which had previously been bustling and lively, was still. The narrator steps in and says, it's as if nature holds her breath. And he looks up and he sees this figure that is called the friend and the helper. Rat! He found the breath to whisper shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured the rat, his eyes shining with inexpressible love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals crouching to the earth bowed their heads and did worship. To fear is to tremble. But it is not to tremble under the weight of terror. The Bible tells us that to fear the Lord is to tremble under the weight of profound glory and beauty and holiness. And we probably know from our experience in life, there are moments when we tremble in terror. Maybe you've been in a near accident where you slam on your brakes and you narrowly escape crashing into a car and, and your body, the adrenaline kicks in and you begin to shake. 
But we probably also know from our experience that we can also tremble in joy. Every once in a while, something will come into our experience that totally shocks us, that totally just takes our breath away. Maybe there's that moment in that song, the crescendo in the song, or maybe that epic turn of events or twist in the movie that gives you the chills, or maybe like a groom seeing his bride come down the aisle. But these are all just dim reflections of the glory of God that is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see is that this king, this glory that draws near is greater than the glory of the ark. You remember from the stories of the Bible, what happens if you reach out and touch the ark? You die, you're dead. But remember from the gospels? What happens when you reach out and touch the son of glory? You live, you're healed, you're transformed. And so for the Christian, you are being called to tremble under the weight of such profound grace and healing and beauty and to allow yourself, and this is key, to allow yourself to be completely undone in his presence. I think this is the challenge for many of us. I think a lot of us experience sort of stoicism in our lives, in our faith, because we have convinced ourselves that we need to be, be the people that have it all together. Drama, that's for so-and-so. Life in shambles, that's for so-and-so. But I'm the person who has their life together. I'm the person that puts on a happy face. I'm the person that holds things together so other people can be stable. Forgetting that the uniformed report of scripture is that those who are in the presence of God are undone. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six? He sees this heavenly vision. What does he say? Woe is me for I am undone. I think the key today is allowing yourself to be undone in his presence. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit. But there is a distinct out of controlness that you have to embrace when you're in the presence of Almighty God. You guys still with me? Let me sum it up here. Let's look at this final point, anticipation. I think of a lot of us, for a lot of us, when we think about our future with God, we think about being taken away to some far off heaven once we die. And I think for a lot of Christians today, we have reduced our vision of hope to just trying to survive this life long enough so that we can one day go fly away to be with God. But the vision of hope that the Bible offers us is far more exhilarating. What we anticipate is not going away and leaving this earth. What the Bible causes us to anticipate is the kingdom of God drawing near. What's the Lord prayer, Lord's prayer teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about God's kingdom drawing near and specifically it's about the once crucified and now forever risen Jesus coming again in splendor and in holiness to finish what he started. Verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. 
He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that's in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Now there's tension here. Because on one hand, we are told the Lord reigns. Jesus is raised, ascended. He's at the right hand of God. Jesus is Lord. And yet we're waiting for the day when he will come to judge the living and the dead. But this is good news because it means that the future of this world is not hanging in the balance. The future of this world does not rest in the hands of humanity. The future of this world in your life is not subject to the impotence of your worthless gods. The future of this world and the future of your life rests completely in the promise that God will draw near in justice and in righteousness and in equity. As we see here, creation is described as remaining on its tiptoes. It's as if it's holding its breath, waiting for that moment that it lets out its rejoicing when he returns. Romans chapter eight describes creation as groaning. And then it says that creation is like a pregnant woman just longing for the day to come. And we are being called to enter into the intensity of that anticipation as well. We may today yawn in the face of glory, but the Bible tells us that not a single soul will stand indifferent on the day that Jesus Christ returns. Philippians chapter two says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What are we being told here? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus reigns. Now for those of us who trusted in Jesus today, we can look forward to this day in joyful anticipation. We don't have to be afraid of this day. We don't have to cower in fear about the implications of Jesus coming back. For those of us who've trusted in Jesus, the good news is that at the cross, all of the punishment of our sins was absorbed in Christ. He was judged in our place. And the good news for you today is that if you trust in Christ today as well, this is the joyful anticipation you can embrace as well. We have only reason to hope because it means that when Christ comes back, the beauty and the glory of heaven will touch down. Everything that is wrong right now will be made right again. Everything that is broken in your life and in the world will be made whole again. Every injustice will be dealt with. The Bible tells us that there will be no more war, no more strife, no more fighting, no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sad goodbyes. In fact, the the place that we hinge our life and eternity on, the hope that we cling to in this life and in death is what we find in Revelation chapter 21 where we're told this. He who was seated on the throne said, behold, 
I am making everything new. What are we doing here today? You ever just stop to realize, like, what are we doing here? Why are we singing? Why are we praising? There are a lot of reasons. But one specifically is this, that when Christians gather to sing and to worship, we are joining the procession. We are joining, just as Israel gathered at the arrival of the ark, we are joining with Christians all across the globe. We're joining with the heavenly hosts and all of creation, singing in anticipation of our coming King, Jesus Christ, glory incarnate. But we're not just singing in anticipation, we are singing for the sake of our anticipation. We are singing because we forget. We are singing because we are so prone to become enamored by lesser things. We sing because we are a distracted people. We sing so that the nations may know of our King Jesus. And we sing so that we may never forget to offer God the glory and the praise that he alone is worthy of. I wanna close with a quote, and I want you to hear this spoken over you. Look up. You whose gaze is fixed on this earth, who are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth, look up to these words. You who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are crying over the fact that the earth has gracelessly torn us away. Look up. You who burdened with guilt cannot lift your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware, be watchful. Wait just another short moment, wait, and something quite new will break over you. God will come. Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for the hope found in this psalm. And I feel today, maybe more than ever before, distinctly invited by this psalm. I acknowledge, Lord, psalms like this, I've taken for granted Every time I, I gather with the church I serve and, and we read the call to worship and we sing, I just take all of it so much for granted. And I forget the cost. We thank you for your son, the lamb, the offering that allows us, the nations, to come into the sanctuary. And we thank you, Lord, that the lamb is also the risen king who rules over all of creation, who comes to judge justice, equity, faithfulness. Lord, where we see things in our life that is out of control and where we're burdened by things that just seem so messed up, would you stir our anticipation? 
Lord, where we have become enamored by lesser things, where we have clung to idols. Today, Lord, we repent. We just lay those worthless things down and we turn to you again, the source of all life. And Lord, where we have failed or even refused to give you the glory, would you put this new song in our mouth? You are the one that stirs us to praise. You're the one that opens our eyes to see your beauty. You're the one that awakens our hearts to respond. Make us a worshiping people, we pray. And right now, Lord, we invite you to undo us. Undo us in your presence. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. So we have an opportunity to respond at this point. And there are various ways, but I think that they're all really important. For one, there are carpets up front to come and kneel before the Lord. Um, our lives are not cultivated and conditioned to make ourselves feel small. Everything that we do throughout the week is really just an attempt to puff ourselves up. And the bigger we think we are, the smaller our vision of God is gonna be. And when we kneel before the Lord, that reverse happens. We see ourselves as small and we see God as big. Also, when we come to the carpet, it's an opportunity to really like embody and reenact sort of our repentance. Maybe there's something you've been clinging to, something you've been holding on to this week or over the course of this year, maybe your entire life that is actually eclipsing God's glory that needs to be laid down right now. I wanna invite you to come lay it at the altar and take up the better that is found in Jesus Christ. Also, for those who've trusted in Jesus, we have an opportunity to come and receive communion. Communion's interesting because it looks back to what Jesus has done, but it also looks forward to Christ's return. Every time we partake of communion together, we proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. This may be a very distinct way that God stirs your anticipation. And then finally, there are men and women on the sides over here to my right and left that are ready to pray with you. I would urge you that if you're feeling the Lord stirring in your heart, you don't know how to put it into words, come and let someone pray over you. Wherever you are, wherever you stand, wherever you come here at this next portion of our worship service, here's my urge, I'm, here's what I'm urging you to do. Respond, respond, give God the glory.